I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Josie Long, and in this new series, Sound Unbound, I'm talking to artists about the music that moves them. Let's meet our first guest. Uh, I'm Steve Reich. I'm a composer, and I'm sitting in my dressing room at the Barbican Concert Hall in London. Steve Reich, and I now realise that is how you pronounce his name, is one of the pioneers of minimalism, and it's hard to understate his influence. From the 1960s, he, alongside the likes of Philip Glass and Terry Riley, has been making maximum use of minimal material to create a distinctive sound driven by repetition, looping and sonic pattern making. He's drawn his influences widely, from Bach to African drumming, but there's one piece of music that has really left its mark on him. The piece of music that uh, probably uh, certainly began my thinking towards becoming a composer and uh, proved to be absolutely true is The Ride of Spring by Igor Stravinsky, maybe the great masterwork of the 20th century. Well, I mean, on a more personal level, uh, I, I was brought up in a, in a relatively middle-class family, and uh, the music that was the recordings that we had, the 78s back in the other, Beethoven's Fifth, Schubert Unfinished, Overture to the Meistersinger, basically some classic and romantic music. No music past Wagner, no music before Haydn. So I was 14 years old, it was 1950, and a friend of mine said, you've got to come over and hear this. And I kind of thought, oh, okay. And he played me a recording of the Rite of Spring, uh, I think it was the Boston Symphony Orchestra. I heard the recording and my jaw dropped and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was like someone had said, well, you've lived, you know, for 14 years here, but there's one room you haven't seen yet. And uh, in a sense, I opened that door and I walked in that room and I'm still living in that room, along with Johann Sebastian Bach and John Coltrane and several other people. I mean, music had been something, I'd taken piano lessons, uh, but after the Rite of Spring, I, I then heard the Fifth Brandenburg for the first time. And then I heard Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and the drummer Kenny Clark for the first time. And this juncture at the age of 14 determined my life. Absolutely, it was a, it was a determining uh, time. And then I began studying percussion with Roland Koloff, who was a great drummer, and he became the timpanist with the New York Philharmonic. So it just turned out that I was sort of always at the right place at the right time. And that first right place at the right time was hearing the Rite of Spring at the age of 14. 
I can imagine that even the least initiated classical listener will probably recognise something about the Rite of Spring. Stravinsky wrote the music for Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, and there was a riot, or at least something approaching a riot, at the premiere in Paris in 1913. It's also the soundtrack to Disney's Fantasia, the bit with the Big Bang and the dinosaurs. But what's it actually about? This is Ben Jernan. He's a conductor and he's our musical expert here on Sound Unbound. Stravinsky's Rite of Spring has to be one of my most favourite pieces of work, both to listen to and to perform. The Rite of Spring is a collection of prehistoric pagan practices. Stravinsky really wanted a girl to dance herself to death, and it's important to note, actually, that in no pagan culture was that normal, other than the Aztecs. Um, So this is something that he really wanted to put into this piece. But what we have is this wonderful portrait, a collection of portraits of prehistoric pagan rituals. So for me, it's um, barbaric, it's pretty revolting, but it's also a wonderful celebration of the earth on which we live. I think this music is so brilliant because for me, the main driving factor in this piece is the rhythm. You cannot escape the inevitability that this girl is going to dance herself to death at the end. Now, how does Stravinsky create this wonderful sense of momentum? The opening of The Rite of Spring is extremely special and mysterious. You have this extremely high bassoon note, which really ought to be on the cor anglais or a higher-pitched woodwind instrument. It's actually quite difficult for the bassoonist to play, and they just play completely on their own. Stravinsky said that he took this from an old Lithuanian wedding song that he had heard, and a male voice that sounded quite strained. So I think the effect he's trying to create here is one of tension. And then for me, what is really exciting and possibly might be one of the most famous parts of this piece is uh, the dance of the young girls. Where we have this very metric rhythm that's very stable, but he offsets us and he throws us into this roller coaster ride of nobody quite knows where the beat's coming. And so we have this wonderful sense of syncopation, and you already get the sense of these um, girls and dancers already beginning this very ugly dance. Part of the greatness of the music is. Now, here's a melody that's really. But the compass, how far the notes is, usually with the range of a fifth, like if you were going from C to G. And everything was happening in that little area, which builds up a kind of tension. And every once in a while, there'll be a flash of color. A lot of Stravinsky feels to me, metaphorically, as if it was a, there was a huge r- river and then an enormous dam holding it up. And Stravinsky is that dam holding this pressure, this emotional intensity, which you know is there, but he's holding it back. It's in the, 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 the folk uh, tunes itself uh, have that potential. They're, they're not monotonous. They're, there's something energetic about it. and you're. Because they're so constrained, that constraint promises energy, contains the energy. There's a great emotional intensity to And at the same time, just an enormous amount of skill uh, in terms of uh, the writing of the parts. For instance, in the Rite of Spring, you have all these irregular accents. But because they were dancers, and Stravinsky was aware it was going to be a ballet, he, he, he frames them so that you can count them in groups of four. 
So it's, it's not wild abandon at all. Everything is really under control. So it's that incredible combination of what seems like, you know, overwhelming uh, energy. But if you look at it carefully, it's quite worked out. It's quite tailored for musicians to play. So it will fit well on their instruments, superbly well on their instruments. And the dancers can follow it too, because the layout of the irregularities is regular enough so that they can count it. So it's, you know, the more you look, the more you find out. I think conducting this piece is terrifying. It's also exhilarating. Essentially, this piece is very simple although it sounds extremely complex. So as a conductor, you have to just be very uh, straightforward, make sure that you're showing everybody where they need to be. But underneath us, this tremendous emotional force and volcano that's brewing inside you. You end the first part on this adrenaline high, and then the second part starts very soft and extremely mysterious. So as a conductor, you're constantly managing these different atmospheres, but really your end goal is this young girl's death and the complete collapse of everybody's energy at the end. So I find it thrilling, but also incredibly exhausting to conduct. The intensity of this piece of music made a huge impact on the 14-year-old Steve Reich. But did it shape his music in turn? I got a tremendous amount of energy for Stravinsky, a tremendous amount of information, but uh, I, I've never tried to, you know, work out the, the, the notes that say, well, well, how would I, you know, manipulate that chord or, or, or a group of melodies? It's one of the general principles um, that I, I got, and the, and the energy. And of course, the rhythmic part of it is, is extremely important. In other words, who could imagine anything? How could I have imagined at 14, having heard basically, you know, from Beethoven 5 to, to Wagner, that kind of motor energy coming out, out of a, a piece of classical music? Uh, so that, that can't be, you know, understated. Of course, it's, it's pivotal. For me, there's a really interesting comparison between Steve's music and Stravinsky's music, and that's Stravinsky and Steve are both masters of ostinato, so the repetition and the layering of rhythms to create excitement and drive. For me, the writer's ring has this brilliant drive right to the end. And also, Steve's music is founded upon this great sense of pounding rhythms, of layering complex and more complex rhythms on top of each other. And for me, that's the most interesting comparison between Stravinsky and Steve Reich. But Reich and Stravinsky have something else in common. A riotous, or at least revolting, audience. The riot at the right in 1913 is wrapped up in myth and no one really knows exactly what happened. There's plenty of speculation online if you want to find out more. But Steve remembered how it felt when his piece, Four Organs, simultaneously delighted and disgusted the Carnegie Hall audience. I was not in Paris, I was not even born in 1913 when the Rite of Spring was premiered and there was a famous riot that took place. But I was alive, uh, well, and performing at Carnegie Hall with Michael Tyson Thomas in 1973 when we did the premiere, the New York premiere of, actually it wasn't even the New York premiere, it was the Uptown premiere. <laughs> it played at the Guggenheim Museum for a very small audience who just loved it. But 
at Carnegie Hall. Michael had uh, uh, had uh, programmed it along with, it was called multiples. In other words, pieces where you have more than one, uh, multiple same instrument. And one of the pieces was the Liszt Hexameron, very unknown piece for six pianists. And uh, apparently he had written it for uh, Chopin and himself and several other notes. And the way they performed it was people sort of dressed up as, you know, over that one Chopin. And now who's going to come to that? You know, what kind of audience is attracted to the Liszt Hexameron, you know? There were, as we said in those days, a lot of blue-haired ladies, and I don't mean punks. <laughs> this is old-style blue-haired ladies. And the last thing in the world ever expected are four farfis and many compact screamer organs with four maracas. And so I went in, you know, just concerned as the wiring setup, are we going to be heard, you know, completely oblivious to the sociology of the situation. Because that's sort of, I'm a little bit that way. Um, I'm very concerned about you know how we're going to do what we're going to do because I was I had my, I was running my own group and this was a different group and and anyway so we started and the piece is about twenty odd a little bit twenty two twenty three minutes long and it basically uses the same set of notes for twenty three twenty four minutes but they augment they get longer and they also sort of break apart and form a lot of content but that wasn't <laughs> I think what happened in the hall was about after the first two or three minutes people realized those notes aren't going to change <laughs> and once. Once that got clear, there were first rumblings, and then the rumblings became to like mutters. It, it got pretty loud. I mean, and you have to be glued to the score of four organs because there are just tiny uh, changes of addition, things getting longer. And the only way to do it is to zero on, in this case, on Michael Silson Thomas, who would nod, meaning, okay, now we change the next bar. But you have to know what bar you're in, <laughs> or if you've missed the mod. And so by the time we got to the end of the piece, it was just pandemonium in the house, he was going, one, two, three, four, five, six. Because you know, with screamer organs and people screaming, you know, so we, and we stayed together, I mean, sort of. And, it was, and then, you know, bravo, woo, you name it. And uh, I turned white as a sheet. And Michael said to me, this is wonderful. This is history. And he's thinking, you know, 1913. And I'm thinking, you know, why, why, I, I want you to love it. <laughs> Anyway, it, it, it all worked out. I'm still very close to Michael Tosin Thomas, and the, the piece uh, was recently done uh, at the Winter Garden in New York City by uh, members of a Signal Ensemble, and I asked them, and, and she wrote back, sorry, no riot, they loved it. <laughs> so uh, things change, and that's all for the good. Thanks to Steve Reich. Ben Jernan, and to you for listening to this episode of Sound Unbound with me, JC Long. In the next episode, we'll be talking to folk musician Corrine Paulwatt. There's something about the feeling of that piece of music and the story behind it because it was written in 1980 as a political protest, which is relatively rare in the world of classical music, but not at all rare in my world of folk music. Thanks for listening to Sound Unbound part of Nothing Concrete from The Barbican. To listen to the rest of the series, subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you'd like to hear more of the music connected to this episode, listen and subscribe to The Barbican's Sound Unbound playlist on Spotify. Sound Unbound is produced by Freya Hellier for Loftus Media. The assistant producer is Alex Quinn.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 